They've got to be in the neighborhoods. They've got to stop believing this myth that people don't know what's best for them and that you can always bring what they need to them. You've got to talk to them. You've got to understand what their needs are. President, unfortunately, he's going to be leaving us soon. And our community organizer at the highest level of the country, hopefully we'll be able to keep that in vogue and in fashion. Baltimore's had a tough time paying groups that do outreach, groups that do organize, groups that bring people to power. Um, all these powerless communities in, in our country are, you know, they're very easily ignored. And if we don't have anyone there to help them lift them up, we're going to be doing the same thing over and over again. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Hi there, and welcome to Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. In today's bonus episode of Infinite Earth Radio, we share an interview we did last year in the wake of the Freddie Gray tragedy in Baltimore, talking about efforts to build better neighborhoods and expand economic opportunity in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods in Baltimore. Today, we'll be talking about the tragic death of Freddie Gray and the underlying economic challenges faced by residents in Baltimore. Our guest today is Mel Freeman. Mel is the former executive director of Citizens Planning and Housing Association, a regional organization whose mission envisions a well-planned Baltimore region with equity among jurisdictions where citizens respect diversity and have access to responsive government and quality housing in vibrant neighborhoods. Currently, Mel is leading uh, his own consulting firm where he continues to work on community revitalization, equitable and sustainable development, and visionary community planning. Mel, welcome and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Hello, glad to be here. So Mel, first we want to start with a sense from you of what the neighborhoods in West Baltimore are, are experiencing now in the wake of the tragic death of Freddie Gray. Last night on the local news, um, I see that Baltimore has had an equivalent number of murders at this point in the year to what they had in all of 2014. So clearly things are not settled down. Um, what, what are you seeing on the ground in West Baltimore and other communities in Baltimore? Well, in West Baltimore, West Baltimore is still basically living with the same issues it's had for the last 20 years. We've had neighborhoods that have had little to no private investment all public investment, lots of affordable housing, but in neighborhoods where other folks don't want to live. You know, they're, they're great communities, but there's just not enough resources for it to go around, not enough jobs, food deserts, you name it, they're there. And the uprising was simply that opportunity to remind the rest of this region that, you know, this is not an equitable region, whereas a lot of folks just hop in their cars and drive around these neighborhoods and think everything is fine, but once you get into them, it's a vastly different community. And so from your perspective, Mel, what's the source of the inequity and what can people think about doing to address that inequity? There's just got to be some more opportunities in these neighborhoods. We talk about jobs. We talk about access to jobs. We talk about just opportunities for for families to not have to worry about every single penny when they get up every day. Being able to provide for their family should be a little easier than this. And it's just not. And these communities in West Baltimore, where there are lots and lots of families that are all under the same conditions, there's no mixing of 
access to anything. Everyone needs everything. Everyone that doesn't have a car or a job or, or a grocery store has got to, you know, all fend against each other. So what should be done? How do we how do we start to address this problem? How do you start to um, uh, eliminate those problems and concerns that you've that you've just articulated? Well, one of the things that's kind of controversial around here is there's a whole there's a big fear of the word gentrification in that you know do we have to have other folks that don't look like us in our neighborhoods to increase the value of our communities? And you know once you start talking about that, people start getting worried that okay now you're just trying to run us out. But if nobody in those neighborhoods improves their personal wealth, improves their living situations, it's just going to continue to be that flat line of all the same income level, all the same lack of jobs. And there's never enough public money ever. Some private investment needs to happen in some of these communities. Some some other opportunities need to show where folks can say, yeah, this is a great place to live. And I think it's time for me to invest. How do you get that mixing? How do you get new people moving back into the community. How do you get that at a level where you're not just pushing all the existing people out of the community? Well, I think there's a bit of reality that we have to speak about, and that is not everyone is going to be able to stay if you actually get this ball rolling. And I'm a big fan of saying that, you know, we do need change in communities, but we also need to secure the families that are there. So if the families that are there are your, you know, your your primary target, I am going to secure X number of families and also invest in this neighborhood. So hopefully some other folks will invest in it with private money, not just public money. The public money is never enough. So if the neighborhoods come up with the right amenities, I mean, it's happening all over the country. The fact that one neighborhood becomes the next charm, as in Charm City, but yet we didn't think of a preservation strategy to keep those families there and they just get moved to some other place that is less desirable, but affordable, but nobody else with money wants to live there. So there's kind of two pieces, right? How do you encourage people who have current economic capacity, if you will, to move into the neighborhood? So you need tools for that. And then you need tools to keep the existing folks in the neighborhood. So do you have any suggestions on on either of those ends? My suggestion is it's a preservation strategy first. As you are building a community that's going to make it appealing for others to invest in, once that ball's rolling, you won't be able to stop it. So having your preservation strategy in place first, like who is your affordable housing partner and do they understand what a good mix of affordable housing is in a neighborhood? And are you gonna be able to make that permanent housing for X number of years? So that way your other strategy of policing and cleaning and, and just private investment start to roll in. If any neighborhood has the right resources, whether it's waterfront, whether it's, access to highways, access to roads, access to transportation. The market will eventually take over, but you just have to prepare for that and have at least some preservation strategy in place first. So here in Baltimore, yeah, we're working in some neighborhoods and we're trying to figure out who is the best affordable housing partner. Is it the city or is it a nonprofit? But we need to know that we're gonna preserve something and then try and figure out what else is needed to make this neighborhood appealing to private dollars. Is there a target? Is there, we want to make sure that, you know, there's a a thousand housing units in this neighborhood and we want to make sure that some percentage of them remain affordable. Well, it would be nice. The number that's being thrown about now is a third, a third, a third. I personally think it probably slides a little more 
to the, um, I don't know, 25 low income, 50 middle income and 25 higher income. I'm not really sure. We're still trying to figure that out, but no matter what you do, you've got to have a plan for whatever third or whatever 25 percentage that you're going to have affordable housing that's permanent. That process is sort of underway in Washington, D.C., in the District of Columbia as a seat, right? Not as a federal city, but as a city of neighborhoods. And at this moment, the District of Columbia does not have one unit of available affordable housing left. And all the development has been market rate and luxury development. So the lower income folks are being pushed out of D.C., even the Anacostia section of D.C., which most white people never knew existed. Now everybody is building development over there because it's riverfront and it's transportation and highway access. But all the lower income folks are being pushed into inner ring Prince George's County, um, where I live, which is not a problem, except that there are no resources, no jobs and no transportation to support this growing poor population. So we're just moving the pieces around on the chessboard. And I wonder what kind of systemic visionary thinking is required to think about us as a region, but as each individual metropolitan area, how do you meet the needs? So this 25-50-25 split that you're talking about, the 25 low income split is not happening in the District of Columbia. And frankly, I don't see it happening a lot in Baltimore or other cities around the country. People are trying to attract another level of, um, of, of residents and people who will buy and shop and make thriving communities, but they're forgetting about how you meet the needs of the lowest income population. So I hear what you're saying, that that split and that balance is what really would work best. But it seems that the folks at the lowest end of the economic strata are not being thought about in this new revitalization equation. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? What do we need to do to make it more balanced? I agree with that completely. One of the problems that we're also having in Baltimore is we took a lot of time to do an inclusionary zoning legislation and it got watered down to where it is absolutely useless. So as those neighborhoods really start to move faster than you can secure your affordable housing, you've got to make sure you have inclusionary zoning in there to force it to happen. Um, again, but you're fighting against folks that don't want those people in their neighborhoods. And as the neighborhood that is like all of our neighborhoods downtown, where a lot of new housing projects are, are underway, you know, we're fighting really hard to get just one unit but it's not happening because we just don't have the will. So inclusionary housing is one of the tools. Zoning is part of the tools, having the right partners, having a real effort that says we must do this. I wonder if you think people have moved on from the uprisings in West Baltimore in response to, to the killing of Freddie Gray. Have we forgotten? already about what the conditions are there and have we moved on and turned our back to to different things into a different conversation oh that's such a tough one i'm um let me start with first that the freddie gray uprising in baltimore was mishandled in such a way and some of the things were directly related to that and other things were just crimes of convenience the crimes of convenience that, that spread through the rest of town where they looted the drugstores, the pharmacies, you know, it's been estimated that lots of, lots of pharmaceutical products are all over the streets of Baltimore now. It's been estimated that lots of guns have ended up all over the streets of Baltimore. And I'm not really sure where those came from. 
But all that has just caused this recent crime wave of everything. Everything's everything's legal now. You know, everything is at 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 odds with what's what's right and what's wrong, and it's still happening in the same neighborhoods now. Albeit, it is starting to creep a little bit more into into what would be what, what was considered our safer communities, and it's going to be unfortunate. But that's probably going to be what it's going to take for something really to change. Um, the police are having trouble keeping up. It's just so much going on right now. Given those challenges, and one of the challenges was a new governor who has more of a law and order approach that perhaps responded in an overhanded way to, to what was going on. But another thing that the governor did that is perhaps more well known to you and I, because we, we were working on this effort together, is a decline to continue to invest and develop the red line light rail system that was going to go through West Baltimore and other distressed communities. And we were, and lots of people we're thinking about the promise of transit-oriented development. Well, Governor Hogan has decided that that's not a good investment of Maryland dollars. Can we change his mind, or how can we pick up that planning process that included so many distressed communities? The uh, the new executive director of CPHA, where I used to be, they are leading an effort of trying to figure out how we can convince this governor to get the red line back online. There are other organizations as well working on this. It seems that he was looking strictly at the dollars and had no idea the impact of people not being able to get the jobs. And we had the perfect tool to do that. And I'm not sure who he's listening to. I have discovered recently that he's been listening to some of the local elected officials who have not been supportive of the red line in secret. And I'm going, are you kidding me? You've been going along with the plan. And then all of a sudden, when you get a chance to have a new governor and you think you can shine with him by saying no don't do it it just it doesn't make any sense and i know what's going on they have, they have had the opportunity to talk to citizens in these neighborhoods who have had access to other transit but never used it because they didn't know it was of value to them if you give anyone a chance to say no to something and give them the right lead on they're going to say no but the studies have shown that this transit line would have provided access to thousands and thousands of jobs. And we have works such as the Opportunity Collaborative, which also studied the fact that access to jobs will help the region. And we just cut off our leg there, just completely dismantled three years of work in the Opportunity Collaborative, years and years of work for CPHA, years and years of work for many organizations, including the Mass Transit Administration. I just don't know where this governor got this idea from. And if he got it from the legislators, I want to find out which ones were not promoting this system for the last 10 years. So Mel, say a little bit more about the Opportunity Collaborative. What is it and what promise does it offer? The Opportunity Collaborative has the promise that we can now connect at the regional level that we all have the same problems. Baltimore City is surrounded by Baltimore County on three sides and another county at the southern edge. And then we have some other counties that make up the region. And Baltimore has its own share of low-income families and folks without jobs and jobless rates and things such as that. And the counties have very similar numbers, but they feel as though that their problems are different than Baltimore. So therefore, we don't have to talk about solving the solution, making the solution together. The Opportunity Collaborative really showed the fact that if we have a microcosm of X number of issues in Baltimore City, it's the same in the rest of the region, just on a smaller scale. And if we work together, we should be able to solve all of our problems together. 
And the Opportunity Club did a really great job of that. I was proud to be a part of it. It talked about the jobs that are most likely to pay a livable wage. It talked about jobs that you can get through from your, your lowest level and into a higher paying wage in a reasonable amount of time. It talked about jobs that you don't have to have a full four-year degree, that you can actually have a two-year degree and actually get to a livable wage. It, a lot of great work was done there, and I'm, I'm really hoping that uh, we remain strong in trying to keep the Opportunity Collaborative work on the forefront. And it was supported by the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Federal Department of Transportation, and the, the Environmental Protection Agency, yes? Correct. So Mel, in light of what's ha- recent events in Baltimore, and um, you know, we talked about the the red line being uh, shut down, even though it's a fabulous idea to create opportunity for folks. What what do you do? How do you inspire residents of distressed communities who you know really have such little hope and they face so many challenges: uh, poverty, high unemployment, housing instability, food insecurity. Uh, violence within the community, uh, an inability to have transportation access to employment. I think so much of lifting people up and moving uh, people forward is, you know, people have to have hope. They need to be inspired. They, they, need to, they need to believe that if they go get up today and work hard and play by the rules, they can get ahead. In communities where they face such obstacles, how do you get people motivated? How do you give them hope? Well, being an organizer at heart, I, I still believe that you can't get anything done unless you're out there talking to people and trying to really understand what their needs are. Um, one of the things that I've always noticed is we have this great transit marked train system over on the west side of town where Bernice and I were working. And there's access to this train, which provides access to jobs up and down the I-95 corridor. But instead of showing people that oh, yes, you can walk out of your front door, walk over and catch the train to a job. What everyone sees is nobody in their neighborhood uses this train. Hundreds of cars drive to this train station, and then those people go to work. And those jobs are for them and not for us. And what we have to do is get out in these communities and talk about what is for them and not have them constantly thinking that the next thing that's going to happen in their community is not for them. It's for someone else. It is for them, and they need to know that. They need to to be a part of understanding and owning it. And we do a really bad job of that. Mel, we could talk to you for hours um, because what's happening in Baltimore is endemic of what's happening across the country. Of course, it's related to the Black Lives Matter movement and so many other movements for a fair and living wage and all the great work that's going on out there. But I I just wonder, um, are we in the right place to be able to capture those lessons? So I, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners what we can do to make sure that we don't forget about places like Baltimore and West Baltimore and that we continue to work to create economic opportunity, safety and security, an equitable opportunity for every community. What can what can our listeners do? They've got to be in the neighborhoods. They've got to stop believing this myth that people don't know what's best for them and that you can always bring what they need to them. You've got to talk to them. You've got to understand what their needs are. President, unfortunately, he's going to be leaving us soon. And our community organizer at the highest level of the country, hopefully we'll be able to keep that in vogue and in fashion. Baltimore's had a tough time paying groups that do outreach, groups that do organize, groups that bring people to power. Um, All these powerless communities in in our country are, you know, they're very easily ignored. And if we don't have anyone there to help them lift them up, we're going to be doing the same thing over and over again. 
Well, Mel, unfortunately, our time has come to an end. Many thanks for uh, joining us, and we hope to see you again soon. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Mel. Thanks, Bernice. Thanks, Michael. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infineearthradio. 